right, good morning, church. Today's word is from Proverbs 18, 21. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. This is the word of God. All right, you may be seated. You know that's not true, right? Trevor had this calm but intentional look in his eye almost as if he was seeing right into my heart. He said those words with a certain kind of assurance. He had the older brother tone in his voice. We're in a crowded pizza place in downtown Portland, and the room was filled with the roar of chatter. And those very words sent me right back to being 21 years old. Someone I really looked up to, a father figure, a vital leader in my life, uttered a set of words that would haunt me for the next five years. God will never bless you. I remember at the time, so much was happening in my head, but as those words were spoken, it was like daggers into my soul. And from that moment on, I was always running from the shadow of those words. At every hard moment or misstep, those words rang in my head. Whenever something went wrong with the church plant, which if you ever planted the ch a church, happens all the time, God will never bless you, rang in my mind. When we lost our building due to the pandemic, God will never bless you, rang in my mind. When it felt as if we would never really gain momentum, God will never bless you, rang in my mind. The words haunted me, and they still did as I retold the story to Trevor in that pizza place. Even though it had been five years since I heard those words, if I was honest, they still stung the same. You know that's not true, right? Trevor said. I nodded reluctantly. You see, I knew they weren't true at a conceptual level. I had convinced myself of this time and time again that those words bore no weight in my life. But no matter how many times I convinced myself of that truth, those words never loosened their grip. For the next several minutes, Trevor began to unpack all the ways God was indeed blessing me and was indeed blessing the church that we had started. And then he himself became, began to bless me. And as he was speaking, it was like his words were healing the sting. What once felt so visceral became dull. In typical Portland fashion, as my wife and I walked away from the pizza place, it began to rain. And as we walked back to our hotel, the rain was pouring down, and with each drop, I felt the weight of those words begin to wash off of my soul. Trevor blessed me. And in doing so, the words that once haunted me were left behind at a pizza place in Portland. Something life-changing happened to me that day. If you were in the pizza place with us looking at us, it would look like just two friends having a conversation. But something profound was taking place. It's what the biblical authors call blessing. We're in a series entitled The Sunday Gathering, Liturgy, Formation, and the People of God. And today is our final installment. 
Today we close out our series the very same way we close out our services, with a blessing. Now, in today's um, sermon, I'm borrowing greatly from the works of John Tyson, Ronald Rollheiser, Tyler Staten, and John Ortberg. Um, they have some phenomenal works on this, so if you want more information, I can give you some recommendations there. But what exactly do we mean by the word blessing? And what is happening when we do that at the end of our services? This is the question before us today. First, what is blessing? Now, if we're super honest, blessing sounds like an overtly Christian word, and it's kind of become a cliche, right? Someone sneezes, and instinctively, reactively, you say, bless you, right? When was the last time you had intention behind that, right? It's just reactionary. I bless you, bless you, right? We say it when things are going really great, hashtag blessed, right? Um, in, this, in the American South, they say it almost always after gossiping about somebody, right? It's, he's really struggling today, bless his heart, right? People in my profession, pastors, say it when they know they're supposed to say something godly but aren't sure what to say, so they just exit the conversation with, Bless you, right? And <laughs> just leave that way. But is this what the biblical authors have in mind when we're talking about the word blessing? Well, there are two words the biblical authors use that in English get translated to blessing. The first is the Hebrew word ashray. Can you say that? Ashray. Good. I like the phlegm people are my kind of people. That's what I'm talking about. And it literally means to be happy and or to be flourishing. Right? In the Greek, it's makarios, and it means to be happy, to be flourishing. Same word used. And this is the word that's used in Psalm 1 and in Matthew 5. Right? Psalm 1. Blessed there is Ashrei. Ashrei is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person, this one who is Ashrei, is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. You see, the imagery already there in Psalm 1 connotates that of somebody being planted to bring about flourishing. In Greek, it's the same, word, it's a, it's a similar, it's the same meaning, makarios, and this is what Jesus uses in the Beatitudes, most famously Matthew 5. He says this, Blessed, makarios, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This first word describes what it's like when someone lives in line with the created order. They begin to flourish, living as they were designed. Scholar Jonathan T. Pennington says this, Thus, ashray refers to true happiness and flourishing within the gracious covenant God has given. So that's one aspect of blessing, ashray, makarios, to flourish. The other word is the word in Hebrew, baruch. Can you say that? Baruch. It sounds like we're Spartans, right? Baruch, baruch. I'm sorry. But the Greek word is eulogia, which is where we get the English word eulogy, right? Which is a speech that somebody gives at someone's funeral to speak on their behalf, to specifically speak well on their behalf. And so these words mean exactly that. They mean to speak well of or to speak the intention of God over somebody. This, this second idea of blessing. So Eugene Peterson talks about these two words of blessings, two words of blessing in his book, Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He says this, there are two words that are translated blessed in our Bibles. One is ashray, 
which describes the having it all together sense of well-being that comes when we are living in tune with creation and redemption. It is what we experience when God blesses us. The other word is baruch. It describes what God does to us and among us. He shares the goodness of his spirit, the vitality of his creation, the joys of his redemption. He empties himself among us, and we get what is his. That is blessing. God gets down on his knees among us, gets on our level, and shares himself with us. See, uh, so what we see here is Asherah and Makarios is someone who is flourishing or happy, living in tune with God's creation. But Baruch, or eulogia, is when someone speaks the intention of God and life into our being. They speak life into us, and from that life flourishes life. Dallas Willard defines blessing as such. Blessing is the projection of good into the life of another. John Tyson says, to bless someone is to desire God's favor, goodness, and purpose, I love this language, to be the crowning reality of that person's life. To bless someone, in other words, is to speak words of life over them that they might live into them. Church father Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, a blessing is a visible, perceptible, effective proximity of God. The idea being that when someone speaks these words of life, it is as if God has come to you in those very words. A blessing is what we hear, is when we hear, rather, God's heart and intentions through the voice of another. And what we realize is there's great power behind blessing. Now, in our modern day, I realize that we don't exactly have a framework for this category of blessing. But one of the ways we still see this alive and well in our modern age is through the formal asking of a blessing to marry somebody. When a young man wants to marry a young woman, we have a tradition where he will ask for the father's blessing. I remember sitting in the restaurant booth with my now in-laws, more nervous than I'd ever been asking for their blessing. Way more nervous than the proposal, way more nervous than the wedding itself, way more nervous than I've ever been here. And I can't imagine what my in-laws felt looking across the table at a 20-year-old with sweaty palms asking to be entrusted with the thing that they love the most. That they would give me that which they held dearest. You see, in that moment, there are two paths before them. There's one that leads to blessing, and there's one that doesn't. In that asking of a question, there are two realities before them. Yes and no. If the father says no, there can be a powerful sense of rejection. And if they choose to proceed, it can create great pain and point, great pain points, always living in the shadow of that no. But if the father says yes, he's not merely giving his approval of the marriage or giving the responsibility of caring for his daughter. He is saying, I want you to become my son. When a father blesses, it changes the whole trajectory of this newly forming family. It is a trajectory of love and love. So we see here, in this tiny moment, there is power. Power behind blessing. So you can see that a blessing is not merely words, but there's forces operating behind them. Now what I want to do is trace this theme of blessing throughout the story of the scriptures 
and then talk about the choice of blessing and curse and lead us into what blessing looks like in our Sunday gatherings. You with me? All six of you, maybe. Well, hopefully I win the rest of you on the way. So, blessing is not optional. It is fundamental to who we are. We were created for blessing. Notice Genesis 1. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Before anything is ever done by humans, they were blessed. And you must know this this morning. You do not strive for blessing. You were created from blessing. You were already given blessing before you did anything. And from this blessing, these first humans are told to be fruitful and multiply. They were created for blessing to be a blessing, to bring about flourishing in God's good world. From this declaration, God's intention from them flows flourishing. But anytime there's an opportunity of blessing, there's a choice to either receive it or reject it. At the heart of blessing is always a choice. And the story begins to fall apart when human beings decide to scheme for blessing on their own terms. The story tells us there's a serpent in the garden. And the serpent tells them that God is holding out on them. In other words, God is withholding blessing from them. And so, these humans scheme to get blessing apart from God. Instead of receiving blessing from God, which they already had, they decide to take it on their own terms. They try to take that which can only be given and in the process unleash the anti-blessing into the world, the curse. Now, through the curse, we see God's good world become broken. And this introduction of this curse breaks God's heart and vandalizes his creation. Now, when I say the word curse, I'm not talking about a hex or a spell. I'm talking about what happens when people take for themselves what can only be given by God. John Tyson says it this way. The curse is rejecting and resisting God's intentions, resulting in his disfavor and displeasure and our dysfunction and destruction. In other words, the curse is the consequence of scheming to get blessing apart from God. Now, God comes through the garden looking for Adam and Eve, and he finds them hiding. Now, what God does next is he lays out the consequences of the choice they have made. First, he actively curses the deceiver, the serpent, and promises that one day this serpent will be crushed. More on that in the weeks to come. Yeah, there we go. Second, and this is vitally important, and it's really important you hear this, God never curses humanity. He actively curses the serpent. The ground is cursed. Humanity never is. All God ever does is explain the consequences of their decision. That's vitally important to understand. Now, because of this choice to reject God's blessing and to take blessing on their own terms, 
Creation is now subject to this curse. Every square inch has become infected. But in the midst of all this hard words, there's also hope. With the promise of the snake crusher remains the promise that God will still bless humanity and they will be a blessing. We fast forward in the story and we find a man named Abraham. In Genesis 12, what does God tell him? That he's going to bless him so that he will be what? A blessing to the nations, right? Through his family, this blessing that resided on the first humans now resides on him, and now it's going to spread to all of creation. This promise rests on his family. Now, that Abraham, and the language is beautiful here, God tells Abraham that him and his wife are going to be fruitful and multiply until their family is as vast as the stars in the sky. We see that promise from Genesis fall upon them. But when Abraham and Sarah get tired of waiting for this blessing to come, what do they do? They try and scheme blessing on their own terms. Abraham and Sarah come together and they have a discussion about Abraham sleeping with Sarah's servant, Hagar. And this would be the way they would become blessed. But instead of bringing blessing, it only brings about the curse. However, God does not give up on this family. He remains faithful to his promise that they would be blessed and still be a blessing. As we follow the story along, we see that this family who becomes Israel continues to fail in their task. But through and through, we see a compassionate and merciful God remain faithful to his promise. Humanity does in fact multiply, but so does the curse. And in all of this, there's still hope. That one day, as the prophets say, God will deal with the curse for good. And suddenly, Jesus arrives on the scene. Now, you see, the Old Testament opens with the blessing, but so does the New Testament. God's blessing on the people of Israel finds its culmination in the arrival of the snake crusher, the blessed one, Jesus. The New Testament opens the gospel narrative all pointing to the reality that Jesus is this promised one, and we see this culminate at his baptism. As Jesus goes in the waters, look what happens. The Father blesses him. Luke 3, 21 and 22. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven opened and the Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. Jesus receives blessing. And what happens from this moment? It's from that moment Jesus begins to reverse the curse. What was broken, he makes whole. What was wounded, he heals. What was dead, Jesus brings back to life. Every year around Christmas time, we sing this song, Joy to the World. I want you to notice the language of what we're singing here, that it doesn't stay packaged within the confines of Christmas, but this reality of blessing and curse is at its core. Isaac Watts penned these words. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. Now notice what Paul tells the church in Galatia when he says this. Christ redeemed us 
from the curse of the law by becoming what? A curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Paul tells us that Jesus absorbs the curse into himself. He allows the curse to run its course. And in overcoming it, he gives us the blessing bestowed upon him. Jesus absorbs our curse and exchanges it for blessing. That which we've reaped upon ourselves, Jesus takes the consequences into his person and he releases blessing into the world. Do you see the pattern? Abraham and Eve are blessed to be a blessing. They choose the curse. God doubles down on his promise. Abraham and Sarah are blessed to be a blessing. They choose the curse. God doubles down on his promise. Israel is blessed to be a blessing, but they choose the curse. God doubles down on his promise. And Jesus shows up on the scene, absorbs the curse so that we could be blessed to be a blessing. And that this original blessing given to Abraham and Sarah, given to Adam and Eve, given to Israel, realized in Jesus, now rests upon us by the power of the Spirit. Jesus reverses the curse so that humanity can be blessed to be a blessing. This is not just hand-picking verses. This is the story of the Scriptures. Scholar Shara Dramala says this, God's Spirit empowers followers of Jesus to live lives of blessing. By his spirit, we become conduits of blessing to others by taking part in the, in the curse reversal that Jesus began. We see this realized at the end of Luke's gospel, Luke 24. It says this, when he, being Jesus, had led them, his disciples, out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands, and he did what? Bless them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. We always think that the final thing Jesus did was give his disciples the great commission, right? Here is your ministry. But the last thing Jesus did was bless them. The very last words the disciples heard as Jesus was ascending to the right hand of the Father were words of blessing. Because the ministry that they would be given to do would be from blessing, just like Eden. So, we see that the story of blessing and curse is all throughout the scriptures. But here's what we also know. This story is our story. Chances are, you feel the weight of this curse too. The effects of the curse are not just observable in the story. They're felt in everyday life. One of these ways is what the biblical, call, the biblical scholars call generational sin. Now, there is a lot of really unhelpful and unclear teaching on this. And so what I want to do is bring as much clarity as I can. We experience the impact of generational sin all the time, even though we don't use that language. 
Generational sin is the dysfunction and brokenness that is passed on to us by our parents. The data is remarkably in on this. We know that those who grow up in certain environments have, have more disposition to the very things that they experienced growing up as a kid. Right? We know that those who grow up in environments of substance abuse, infidelity, and divorce are far more likely to repeat those same actions in their own life. Now, that's not to mention the study of epigenetics, which is the study of how the things that happen to us change the way our DNA works. And all kinds of studies are coming out on this. Now, what I don't want to do is get into the science of it all. Here's that big idea I want to point to. When sin shows up, there's always collateral damage, period. When sin shows, sin shows up, there's always collateral damage. We see this clearly in the scriptures. Just looking at this first family, the family of Abraham, we see that there is a pattern of lying, favoritism, and sibling cutoff repeated in each generation. First lying. Abraham lies about his wife Sarah to protect himself, not once, twice. Uh, Isaac does the exact same thing in the exact place in the exact same way. Lies about his wife Rebecca to protect his own skin. Then we see Jacob come forth, who steals his brother's blessing and is a deceiver, so much so that his name means deceiver, liar, trickster. And Jacob's whole life is marked by lying. There's also favoritism. Abraham favors Ishmael. When he hears that God's still going to give him this other child, he asks God, can you just bless Ishmael instead? When um, Isaac uh, gives birth to his two boys, Jacob and Esau, he favors Esau. And Jacob, when he has his kids, favors Jacob, Jacob, sorry, favors Joseph and later Benjamin. You know the famous story of Joseph's multicolored coat? That was a material way of saying, you're my favorite. We see this fall through the lines. Also, cut off. Ishmael and Isaac were cut off from each other for most of their lives. Jacob and Esau were cut off from each other for most of their lives. Joseph, being sold into slavery, was cut off from all the rest of his brothers for more than a decade. You see the trend following through. I want to be super clear. What I'm not saying is that you are destined to repeat the past. What I am saying is the curse has consequences. And if you're not aware of the patterns of the past, you're likely to repeat them. Pete Scazzaro says this, you may have Jesus in your heart, you've got grandpa on your bones. What he means by that is our families of origin, where we come from, have massive impact on the lives that we lead. And our job as followers of Jesus is to align ourselves, our families of origin, our stories, with that which is true, and to find out where the way of Jesus and how we grow up do not line up. This aspect of our life cannot go unnamed or unnoticed. We have to name the ways that our families are bent away from the way of Jesus and notice the areas that we have dispositions toward those very things and choose to follow Jesus instead. But we are not just victims of the collateral damage of sin. We're also perpetrators. Another way we feel this weight of sin, weight of the curse rather, is through our own sin. Every single one of us makes decisions where we scheme for blessing on our own terms. And we bring about the curse in our own lives by our own decisions. Our sin has consequences. I want to be clear. 
every sin you could ever commit can absolutely be forgiven, washed away, cleansed. But this does not release us from the consequences of our sin, right? If in anger, I lash out on someone I love, God will absolutely forgive me for that. But there's still a relational tear that needs mending. That just because God forgives me doesn't mean the relationship is repaired. I must do whatever it takes to repair that relationship. I am forgiven for my sin, but my sin still has consequences. Tyler Staten says this, God is forgiving, sin is not. The curse, however, is not only spread by things done to us and by us, but it's also spread by things that are said. And this brings us to our teaching text. The author of the proverb says this, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Just as before each of us, there is a decision to receive blessing from God or scheme blessing for ourselves and bring about the curse, there also lies a decision for us to either speak blessing or speak curse to those around us. When, whether we are aware of it or not, our words carry with them an incredible power. We have phrases in our culture like this, sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words will never hurt me. That's cute. It sounds really nice, and it is a good comeback on the playground. However, it's not true. A more accurate thing would be sticks and stones may break my bones, but your words will crush me. John Ortberg says this, like food goes into the body, words go into the soul. Now, if you're worried, and this sounds a little, eh, consider Jesus' teaching. Jesus in Matthew 5 says this, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who tells a brother or sister, raka, which is an Arabic, like an Arabic curse, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Kind of intense, Jesus, don't you think? James riffs off these same things, and he akins the tongue to a fire that can bring about great destruction. And in, in his words to the, the churches in the diaspora, James tells them this, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who are made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. Brothers and sisters, this should not be. All the New Testament authors do not think words are merely words, but that words create worlds and shape people's trajectory. Now, I don't know what comes to mind when you think about cursing somebody with your words. To be clear, this isn't the use of colorful language, to put it nicely. That can absolutely be a part of it, but that's not what we're talking about here. It's not putting a hex on somebody or a spell. That is relatively easy to avoid, right? If you're like, just don't cuss at anybody with colorful language, don't put spells on anybody, check Jesus, I'm good, right? Not at all what we're talking about here. It's far more pernicious. John Ortberg says this. You can curse someone with an eyebrow. You can curse someone with a shrugged shoulder. I have seen a husband curse a wife 
by leaving just the tiniest delay before saying, of course I love you. The better you know someone, the more subtly and cruelly you can curse them. My hunch is that as I share the words that haunted me, you have some of your own. Everyone I have ever met carries words that wounded them, that hurt them. Maybe the words are different, but the effect is all the same. You'll never amount to nothing. You're ugly. No one will ever love you. Why aren't you more like your sister? Why are you so difficult? These kinds of words can be categorized into two sections. Wounds and lies. Wounds are experiences we carry that do not heal. And often we live from these places, living reactively from these places. Words said in a moment that we carry with us for a lifetime until that wound is addressed. And you know that wound is there because anytime someone gets near it, it stings the exact same. Someone even approaches it and easily you're defensive, you're quick to respond, you're quick to get angry, it's exposing there's something tender there. Maybe even if you talk about it, tears begin to well up in your eyes. These are wounds. And there's also lies. Lies are curses that shape the stories that shape us. A curse, it's a curse that becomes a script that you live by. It is something someone said that you now walk and live in. A lie is a curse spoken that shapes identity. And my hunch is there are some of you who've come this morning living in a false identity because of words spoken to you. You believe lies about who you actually are because somebody somewhere along the way told you that is who you are. And this story, this lie, has shaped decisions you've made, people you've welcomed in or rejected in your life. It has shaped you dramatically. John Tyson says this, when our lives are marked by the curse, we believe lies about ourselves that prevent us from recognizing who we are in Christ. So what do we do? Where does this leave us? Well, I want to get to what happens here in the Sunday gathering. As a reminder, we are blessed to be what? A blessing. We have been blessed to become conduits of blessing here on the earth. And this is essential in our Sunday gatherings. As we close out our sermons, we enter into a time of response. When that happens, people come forward to indicate God is doing something in my life. And other people come alongside them, place a hand on them, and pray for them. Do you know what they pray? They pray blessing. They pray that God will continue to do what he's already doing. They bless the work that God is doing in their life. They basically say, in a word, more. Lord, more of this. They are seeing that God is up to something, naming it, and asking for God to increase that measure in their life. We end our services with something called the benediction, which is an English word taken from a Latin word, which literally means to speak well of, benediction, to speak well of. We end our services with a blessing. 
Now, what we do is during the benediction, we have everybody open up their hands as a way to tell their body they're about to receive blessing, that their hands are open to receive that which God longs to give them. And our prayer is geared towards that these people would come into direct contact with the trinity of love in their week, that they would connect to the source of blessing all throughout their week. Then as a community, we do exactly what the disciples did after they received blessing when the text said that they worshipped. We end in a doxology. Who knows the first line? Praise God from whom all Jedi mind tricks. You like that, right? <laughs> this is not by accident. All of this is intentional. We close our services wanting the taste on your lips to be blessing. Blessing. Because that is who you are. And that's what you're being sent in the world to be. Blessing. If you would imagine yourself as a cup being poured into so that you can go into your week and pour out of that cup. The blessing that you've received, you share with the rest of the world. John Ortberg says this, blessing is not just a word. We must think it, fill it, and will it. We communicate it with our, bless with our bodies. Blessing is done by the soul. So this is why when we do the benediction, it's an embodied practice. You're taking it into every fiber of your person. This is who I am. This is how God feels about me so that I can go and be a blessing. Now, I want to talk about how we are to bless. And there's three movements. See, speak, sacrifice. Ronald Rollheiser says this. To bless someone is to see and admire that person, speak well of him or her, and give away some of your life that he or she may have more life. First, see. All of us long to be seen ever since we were kids. Last night as I was preparing dinner for our family, my oldest Ben kept coming into the, living, into the kitchen about every three minutes. Hey, Dad, look. Hey, Dad, see. Dad, look. Dad, 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 look. Dad, Dad, right? And always calling for my attention. It doesn't matter what he's doing from the biggest task to the smallest thing. He wants me to see him. That is the way I could best bless my son, is by seeing him. We never lose that desire to be seen. All of us long to be seen. And something profound happens when God puts his finger on something and you feel seen. That you're not alone in this journey that you've been walking, that somehow God is in the midst of everything going on in your world. And as brothers and sisters who serve as one another's priests, our job is to be conduits of blessing. And the first way is by seeing. This probably happens to you all the time. You see something, and you think of something encouraging to say to that person. And it feels absolutely normal. You see a young mom walk in, and you think, man, she's such a good mom. And then you move right along to the coffee and the thing you're doing next. Your spouse does something that serves you and blesses you. And you're like, man, I love when they do that. Anyways, what's on TV? A coworker helped you out with a task. And you think, 
they're like the most helpful person I know. And then you move right along to the next spreadsheet or email. Those are all invitations to see and name blessing. So the simple practice is, and I tell this to my married couples all the time, see good, say it. But first, seeing, becoming aware. The next thing is to speak it. And this is where the power of the blessing comes, is in actually taking a step of faith to act on behalf of God to bless another. It's in the actual declaring of words, not just speaking it in my mind, Lord, they're a good mom, she's doing a good job, bless her. That's fine, but it lacks power. Power shows up in the actual exchanging of words. Hey, I saw you being so patient with your kiddo a second ago, and I just wanted to say, you're doing a great job. You're a good mom. And those words are like water to the soul bringing refreshment. Chances are you've been on the other side of blessing. Now, it's fine and dandy that somebody thought a really nice thing about you, but how does it shift the trajectory of your day, of your life, when someone has the courage to speak those words to you? It changes things fundamentally. Have the courage to see, to speak, and the last is to sacrifice. In the Lord Jesus, we see that the way blessing comes is through a laying down of one's life. Blessing comes when we lay down our agendas, our plans, our purposes, and we become fully aware of the things that God wants to do around us. And we say, Lord, send me. Use me that I may bless those around me. Would you join me in standing? We're going to enter into a time of response right now. And in preparing for this sermon, I felt three invitations for us, three types of people that might be in the room. The first is there some of you who've had a curse spoken over you and you carry it with you today? That it weighs heavy on your soul. That you, like me, feel haunted by it. Feel its shadow looming over you. I believe that Jesus today wants to set you free from those words. If this is you, if you're carrying words that have weighed heavy on your soul, I want to invite you to respond on this side of the room by just coming forward and saying, and carrying those words in your, in your hands imaginatively, and someone will come alongside you and bless you. And if it's too painful to speak those words or to share them, feel no need. Our brothers and sisters will bless you anyway. The next invitation is this sermon has maybe stirred up something in you to feel conviction about the words that you've shared, the things that you've said. And maybe you're wondering if it's too late, that you've said too much, that you've caused too much damage. I'm specifically thinking right now, just as it's coming in, it's just parents who've said things to wound their kids. Two things. One, I want you to respond by coming forward to the front and owning that part of yourself. But second, I want to say, the blessing is stronger than the curse. That if you, leaving this place, have business to attend to those who you love, the power of blessing can break the shackles that the curse has put in place. I think about the story of Joseph 
who has three generations of people who have lied, who have schemed, who has cut one another off, who has betrayed one another, and with Joseph, he breaks the curse. And he says that all that you all have intended for evil, God has used for my good. When he could have responded in cursing his brothers, instead he responds with blessing and then opens up his life to bless his brothers. He breaks the curse in a moment of blessing that is available for you today. If that's you, you want to respond here in the middle, please do. And lastly, there are some of you in the room who have never been blessed. You haven't heard the words, I'm proud of you, I love you, I'm for you. And you've been living out of that place of insecurity. Living out of the place of longing for blessing. As your brothers and sisters, we would love to bless you. I want to invite you to respond to this side of the room. The worship team is going to play. And as they do, let us respond.